So welcome to week six of our Names of God series. And let me just say this, if you have your Bibles, if you could open with me to Genesis 22. So Genesis 22. And let me begin this way this morning. There is no book like the Bible. 66 books that make up one book. And in that one book, or within that one book, there's one hero. His name is Jesus. There is one villain. His name is Satan. There is one problem that is sin, there is one theme that is salvation, and there is one purpose, and that is the glory of God. And the Bible is God-breathed, which not only makes it the book of books, but it also makes it the foundation of all of our thoughts concerning God. So may we all desire that all of our thoughts about God, about our lives, about our world, be founded upon and even be filtered through this book of books. And did you know that there are 31,000 verses in the Bible? Some of us have read every single one of them several times through. Others of us only have like our set of go-to verses. But have you ever considered that all it takes is one verse? All it takes is one verse, one sentence that will change your life forever. One pastor put it this way. He says, books don't change people, sentences do. And let me just add to that, not only do sentences change people, encounters do as well. Especially encounters with deity. Even when those encounters involve the greatest test that we could ever imagine. Yet each encounter with God and with one of his names gives us opportunity after opportunity to know him. And let me set up today this way. So how many of you know the story behind your name? So you know why your parents chose to name you what they named you. So only a few of us, my parents, my father wanted to name me a strong biblical name. And for some reason or another, if you know dad, you would know that this would make sense for him. He wanted to name me Meshach. I'd often tell him, dad, you might as well just name me kick my butt because that's what would have happened throughout my elementary years. Thankfully, mom said, oh, no. And Micah came from that. So praise God for that. And of course, as I told you, when we went through Micah a few years ago, I always thought, the name Micah means who is like God, and I always thought that meant Micah, who is like God. Then it took me a while before I realized there was a question mark, like, who is like God? No one. So it was kind of a little kind of a shot to, to my ego a little bit, but you know, we know the story about our names. Oftentimes, we're named after family members. We're named after whatever popular name it is at the time of our birth, but names that we think about. And names in the Bible are different in their significance. And we talked last week about God changing people's names. And when God changed their names, it defined who they would become. So God took Abram, named him Abraham. He would be a father of the multitudes. That's what, who, who he would become. Simon was changed to Peter. He would become the rock. Yet when it comes to the names of God, the meaning of each and every name of God has extraordinary significance for us. So God is so amazing. God is so complex, so vast, so awesome that one name cannot describe him. In fact, there are hundreds of names in the Bible that describe who our God is. And each name gives us an opportunity to know more about God or for God to reveal himself in some other way into our lives for some specific need that we have. So the names of God carry weight and carry meaning. But as I said from the beginning, the whole point of this series is not just for us to know the names of God, as amazing as they are. The point of this series is for us to know God. 
We want to know God. Our goal is to increase our knowledge of him, increase our trust in him. And God is more majestic than we could ever imagine. As we began this morning, Psalm 8, David said, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So let's dive in this morning and let's behold Jehovah Jireh, the God who will provide. And if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word. And we're going to read verses 1 through 14 together. And it says this. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went up or went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hands the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told them, or him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket. By his horns, and Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So let's pray. Father, we just come before you, O Jehovah Jireh, the God who has provided, who is providing, who will provide, and help us, Lord, to trust that, Lord, no matter where we find ourselves in life today. Help us to appropriate, Lord, that name in our lives today. And Lord, we just pray that you would speak to our lives in a way that brings glory and honor to your name. Have your way. In Jesus' name, amen, and you may be seated. So just think about what we just read. So God commands Abraham to sacrifice his beloved son, even though this might be the thousandth time you've you've heard that. What Abraham is asked to do still feels ungodlike, right? What kind of test is this? If you're familiar with football, NFL, when a head coach perceives that a referee has made a bad call, the head coach can take a red flag, throw it on the field, and basically it means... I think you messed up. You need to review it and fix your bad call. Well, there are times in our lives, during many experiences in our lives, we are tempted to throw the red flag on God and go, God, I think you made a bad call on this one. 
I don't think you made the right call. God needs you to look into this again and reverse the call. Somehow, some way, God, you messed it up. You, somehow you miss something, yet our God never does. So what we do in light of who God is, hear this, we pick up our red flags and we surrender. We surrender. We surrender to him, who he is. And I'm not sure if you know this about yourself, but let me just break some news to, to us. We are a rather self-sufficient people, meaning we look at the weaknesses of others and we glory in how strong we are. We look at the foolish decisions that other people make and we rejoice in how wise we think we are. Or we think about all of the unrighteousness that exists all around us and our chests swell with just how righteous we think we are. And because of this, our Heavenly Father will do a very good thing for us. He will take us beyond our wisdom, beyond our strength, beyond our righteousness, and He will literally take us to a barren place of testing. And He does that so that we will look to Him and trust in Him alone. So that we'll come to know that He is our wisdom, He is our strength, He is our righteousness. And as much as these tests, or this, especially this test, can confound our wisdom, we must believe that God is doing a, a good thing, a, a wise thing, a loving thing, even if we can't see it at the time. I think of the words of Dwight Pentecost who said this, Our faith is often tested most when our present circumstances seem completely contrary to what God has revealed to us through his word. That is precisely the situation Abraham faced, and yet he did not succumb, hear this, to doubting in the dark what God had told him in the light. Instead, he lived his life in accordance with what God had said. Let me just say this this morning. This is one of the most dramatic and tense moments in all of the Bible. A man is about to slay his only son, not as an act of cruelty and not as an act of rage, but out of obedience to a command of God. The story shocks and bewilders what kind of God could ask someone to do this and what kind of person could actually do this. Why would God ask for such a sacrifice? And ultimately, God knows that there is no other way for us to learn that he is God. And ultimately, through this, we come to learn that he is a God who provides for all of our needs. So I'm going to lay before us today four truths concerning Jehovah Jireh, the God who will provide. Number one is this, Jehovah Jireh will test our trust. Jehovah Jireh will test our trust. He will test the things that we hold to and trust in. Look at verses 1 and 2. You see on the screen, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And God's testing is not something that we normally talk a lot about, even in church. Oftentimes we believe that if I love God and God loves me, then nothing bad will ever happen to me. We believe that I'll be blessed and highly favored and nothing bad will ever touch me. We often think that God's love and our comfort 
must be synonymous. That if I love God, God will never allow bad things to happen in my life. Yet, what is happening in this moment feels bad. But let me say this. It's happening because of the will of God. So the word test here helps us to understand God's intention. The word test refers to tempering of metal. So to make it strong, to make it beautiful, and that doesn't happen without taking that metal through fire. So in testing Abraham, God touched the most sensitive nerve in Abraham's life. Let me just say this. Although we know it's a test, Abraham didn't know it was a test. God didn't come and say, Abraham, this is a test. This is only a test. None of that. Even though Abraham had been tested before. Think about this. Every time God had called on Abraham before, God had asked Abraham to leave something, to give up something, or to attempt something impossible. At this point, if I'm Abraham and God comes knocking on my door, I'm turning off the lights, turning off the TV, and nobody's home. Like, I'm not home. I'm not going to do this again. But here Abraham is walking through, and the, the pain and the emotion of this moment is heightened by the fact that Abraham and Sarah waited 25 years for the birth of their son. He was a miracle baby. And now God has answered their prayers and God asked Abraham to do something that seems so cruel and so irrational. Hear this, so cruel and irrational that there is no mention at all that Abraham told Sarah. Because if Abraham did tell Sarah, there'd be another verse that says, and Sarah whipped his behind and never allowed him any kind of contact with Isaac ever again. So no mention there of what's happening, but follow with me here because I want you to understand the command of God here, what God is asking. God is asking Abraham to take his son and to present him as a burnt offering. I don't know if you know what that means, but here's what it means. You kill him, then you cut him up in pieces, you set him on fire and consume him all. Which leads to the question for us, what kind of God would ask for this? You know, in, in the flesh, we want to pull a Thomas Jefferson, right, and just cut this out of our Bibles all together, but we can't because of the revelation of God that we'd be missing. We'd be missing Jehovah Jireh. And Abraham in this moment faced two issues. Number one, this was totally out of character for the for God, the, the God of Israel to command a human sacrifice. This had never been done in the worship of Yahweh. Yes, other pagan nations did this, but never had God Asked for this. In fact, God had always lifted up life. God had always lifted up life. God gave value to human life. But then secondly, if Isaac died, then all of God's promises that God had made to Abraham concerning Isaac died with him. There would be no great nation from Isaac, meaning there would be no savior, meaning there would be no salvation for us. Yet Abraham was certain of what God had asked him to do. And both of these issues went against everything that Abraham understood about God, but God had spoken, therefore Abraham would obey. And like I said, many people begin to question the character of God when it comes to events like this. And I, I love what, Phillips, what Philip Hughes says. He says, Our restricted human horizons incapacitate or limit us from passing judgment on the thoughts and the ways of God. In case you miss what that says, it means this. 
us with our little peon brains, we see a little pea-sized picture of everything that's happening, and God sees it all. He sees it all. And although we need to focus on the hand of God that's orchestrating all of these events, we need to also focus on our own hands. And here's what I would ask you today. Are there things that you are holding to right now that are preventing you from trusting God with all your heart? Are there things that you are holding to that you refuse to let go of? In one of his books, Watchman Nee said this. He said, we approach God like little children with open hands, begging for gifts. Because he is a good God, he will fill our hands with good things. Life, health, friends, money, success, recognition, marriage, children, a nice home, a good job, all the things that we count at Thanksgiving when we count our blessings. And so like children, we rejoice in what we have received and we run around comparing what we have with each other. Yet when our hands are finally full, God says, my child, I long to have fellowship with you. Reach out your hand and take my hand, but we won't. We can't. And God says, but I'm the one who gave them to you in the first place. And we say, oh God, what you have asked is too hard. Please don't ask me to put these down. And God answers quietly, but you must. Never forget that God called Abraham to give back to him what God had supernaturally given to Abraham. Meaning, sometimes God tests our faith by asking us to give back to him what he has supernaturally or faithfully given to us. And in that, in that moment, we can either grab a hold of that thing and say, No, God, this is mine. I did this on my own. I'm not giving this back to you. Or we can open our hands and say, God, it's yours. And in case we're tempted to hold our hands and hold it tight and say, I did this on my own. Let me ask you a question. Where did you get the breath to do it? Where did you get the ability to do it? Listen, I know us. We're not that good. God is. Everything we have has come from him. Therefore, we hold loosely to it all. We hold loosely to it all. Jehovah Jireh will test our trust. But number two, Jehovah Jireh will bolster our faith. He will bolster our faith. He will increase our faith as we obey him. Look at verse three. It says this. I want to read all of it for you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, sat on his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. So this passage tells us that Abraham didn't even hesitate. Think about this. Notice all the verbs in verse 3. He rose, saddled, took, cut, arose, and went. They all indicate an immediate response. Now, I'm not saying Abraham didn't struggle. I'm not saying that Abraham probably had a sleepless night before that. But what I am saying is there's no picture of Abraham questioning God, bargaining with God, no picture of Abraham taking a lamb and putting it in a, in a bag just in case. None of that. And then Abraham takes a three days journey, meaning for three days, Abraham or Isaac had been dead in his heart. And follow with me here. 
Can you imagine the doubts, the fears, the questions that filled Abraham's mind during these three days? Three days is plenty of time to change your mind. Do you know that? Three, three days is plenty of time to look at all of the fine print and find a loophole. Three days is plenty of time to say, God, you turn right there. I'm going to take it. Or just say, I don't want to do this. Let me just remind us this morning that our job isn't to figure out the things that God hasn't revealed. Our job is to obey the things that God has revealed. That's our job, to obey the things that he has revealed. And just think about what has been revealed. I'm going to ask you a few questions, and this is audience participation. Did God promise Abraham a great nation through Isaac? So that is, that is correct. Did God ask Abraham to sacrifice Isaac? Was it a legitimate request? So yes. Did Abraham know in advance how the story would end? So no. See, our problem is we have a tendency to read the story backwards. We know that Isaac didn't die, so we missed the heaviness of what God had asked of Abraham. Listen, Abraham didn't know how the story would end. He didn't know about the ram in the thicket. That would have been a great thing to tell him beforehand, but he didn't know. So the question becomes, what did Abraham know? Well, he knew what God had asked him to do, and he also knew what God had promised him, meaning God had promised that he would bless the world through Isaac. And what he didn't know was how God was going to reconcile this promise for worldly blessings through Isaac with this command to kill his son. Yet it's at this point that Abraham's faith shines so bright because he tells the two men with him, me and the boy are going to go off and worship and we will come back. Abraham had faith here. In fact, in Hebrews 11, the author of Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 19, and I'm going to put it on the screen, says this. says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in fact, or in the act, excuse me, of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So Abraham was believing that even though there was nothing in Scripture, nothing that we know that God had ever raised somebody from the dead at this point, Abraham was thinking, God made a promise. God gave me a command. I'm going to kill my son, and God's going to raise him from the dead. I mean, that is what he's thinking. And let me just emphasize again, it wasn't Abraham's job to keep God's promises for him. That's always God's job. Let me tell you, Brothers and sisters, it's not our job to keep God's promises for him. That's God's job. Our job is to obey what God has told us to do. It was Abraham's job to offer Isaac. It's God's job to keep the promises. And here's the point. When our faith is tested, and hear me this morning, it will be. When our faith is tested, we must anchor our souls to the promises of God. Abraham endured this one of the greatest tests we could ever imagine, but he endured it because he knew the word of God. He knew the promises of God. He knew what later on would be revealed, that God is not a man that he could lie, that God can't lie. And he could do this even when all of the whys that were running through his mind weren't being answered. And here's a good question for us today. What has God spoken to us concerning the circumstances we're facing? 
Let me just give you a few. Are you facing a, a step of faith right now? Well, Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Are you facing circumstances that you feel too weak to endure? 2 Corinthians 12.9 says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Are you facing decisions that you have no answer for? James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Are you facing opposition without or even within? Romans 8.31, If God is for us, who can be against us? Are you facing an apparent lack of resources? Listen to Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Are you facing death? Maybe staring death in the face or a loved one. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I am with you. Has sin won in your life this week? Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Please hear this this morning. We are not a people who live by explanations from God. We're a people who live by the promises of God. Let us live by his promises. Trust his promises. Be bolstered in our faith as we believe his promises and come to be strengthened more and more with each step of faith that we take. So Jehovah Jireh will test our trust. He will bolster our faith. Number three, and I better get an amen here, Jehovah Jireh will meet our needs. He will meet our needs. This is who he is. He's a God who's promised to meet our needs. It's a promise that he will not lie. He will fulfill. But before we unpack this truth, let me, let me point to a reality that we often miss. And here's that reality. Who was it that carried the wood for the burnt offering? So it was, it was Isaac. So why is that important? Well, here's why it's important. Because it means that Isaac was not a scrawny little child. We oftentimes think of Isaac as being like a little five-year-old boy in this process. No, most scholars believe that Isaac was anywhere from 15 to 30. Some even say 33. Think about that correlation there. But 15 to 30, which means that, hear this, Isaac could have easily outran, outpowered, outmaneuvered his 115 to 130-year-old father. So the only reason that, that Abraham is able to make this sacrifice, hear this, is because Isaac willingly laid his life down. The picture is Isaac willingly allowed himself to be tied up and willingly allowed himself to be placed on this altar. And Isaac learned that, that submission by watching the faith of his father. That's what he learned. And think about this. Think about just this submission here. And then when we talk about Jehovah Jireh, we automatically go to verse 14, and we're going to unpack that in just a second. But we miss how impressive verse 8 is. 
Because in verse 8, God hasn't provided anything yet. And so Abraham and Isaac are walking up to this place of sacrifice, and Isaac says, Dad, we got everything, but we don't have the lamb. Where is the lamb? Isaac, not knowing that he is the lamb. It's kind of an awkward moment there. He's it, but Abraham in that moment says this, Son, God will provide for himself a lamb. God will do it. So here's what Abraham is saying. Somehow, some way, God is going to provide a substitute. Somehow, some way, God will offer a lamb and everything will be okay. And on this occasion, a ram was provided, which means, don't miss this, a lamb was still to come. So on this occasion, it was only a ram. It was not a lamb, meaning a lamb still had to come. More on that in just a second. Think about this. Here, Abraham, he binds his son up, lays him down. He is about to take a knife and plunge it right through his son's heart. And all of a sudden, the angel of the Lord says, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham had to be waiting on anything to stop him from doing that. And he was like, yes, Lord, don't do it. And he looked and saw a ram caught in the thicket. And we are told in verses 13 and 14, you see on the screen, and Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the lesson for Abraham and for us, and please hear this lesson, Because it is a frustratingly simple lesson. It's simple, yet it frustrates us at every turn. But the lesson is this. God provides at our greatest point of need. God provides at our greatest point of need. Isaac's greatest point of need in that moment was a substitute. God provides in our greatest point of need. And at the end of the day, this just isn't a story about Abraham's faith. It's not just a story about whether Isaac will live or die. At the end of the day, this is a story about God's provision, and it's a story about Jesus. And I love that Abraham didn't name the place after something that he went through. Abraham wasn't thinking about himself in that moment, and he didn't say, I'm going to name this mountain Mount Trial or Mount Agony or Mount Obedience because I was so obedient in this moment. No, I'm going to name this mountain Mount Provision because God showed up and he provided. It wasn't about Abraham. It was about what God had done. It shall be provided. And here's the beautiful thing. One day on this very mountain, 2,000 years plus after this event, God would provide the ultimate sacrifice. God would provide a lamb. Think about this. What, what Abraham was only asked to do in his heart, to be willing to sacrifice his son, God did in reality. Which leads us to number four. Jehovah Jireh will save our souls. Let me say this this morning, and I want you to hear this. Your greatest need is not whatever's happening phys- physically in your life. Your greatest need is not whatever's happening financially in your life. Your greatest need is not whatever's happening relationally in your life. Your greatest need is to be forgiven of your sin. And until you see that as your greatest need, hear me, you'll never know the forgiveness of God. 
until you see that as your greatest need. Because most people say, think salvation is just an add-on thing. I just want the get-out-of-hell-free card. I want the insurance that I'll go to heaven. But I'm really not that bad, and everybody else is terrible, but I'm pretty good. But until we understand how sinful we are, and that our sin is deserving of the full wrath of God and of hell itself, and we see ourselves as being worthy of God's wrath, and God's wrath coming straight towards us, Yet right before it hits us, we cry out to Jesus in faith and he stands before us and the wrath of God and he absorbs every last drop of God's wrath and he says, it is finished. And we realize that our greatest need for salvation has been fulfilled in Jesus. Do we see that? Do we understand that reality? Our greatest need is for our souls to be saved. Praise be to God, he cares about every other need in our lives. But he cares about that need. And think about what we just read in Genesis 22. I told you I went to the eye doctor this week. And if you've ever been to the eye doctor for a prescription, you know that they sit you down and they put this machine in front of you. And basically they begin to say this. Which is clearer, one or two? One or two. And you go, one. Well, three or four. Three or four. And by this time, you're like, you're just guessing. They all look the same. You know, Five or six, six, seven or eight, eight. I mean, you're just going right along and just doing all. You have no idea what you're doing. You're just, but when all is done, they put all of these things together and they put this machine right in front of you again and everything's clear. Like you can see, like I didn't know I was this blind. And now all of a sudden I'm seeing, I didn't know there were letters there. Like you didn't tell me there were letters there and now there's letters that I couldn't see before. But that's what Genesis 22 does. Now, through Jesus, we see that the whole sacrifice of Isaac by Abraham was all about Jesus. It means something else. It pointed to something in the future. It pointed ahead to a bigger story. In fact, you see on the screen in John 1, John the Baptist, with his disciples, he sees Jesus coming. And he says this, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See, the point is, for 2,000 years, the people of Israel had been waiting for that lamb. They've been waiting for that provision. And John the Baptist sees Jesus, and he says, look, there's the one. There's the one who came to meet our every need and die for our sins. Way back in Genesis, God was showing a preview of the gospel. Therefore, if we look suspiciously at God through Genesis 22, we miss what God did for us us. In fact, let me give you a few parallels. Isaac, according to Genesis 22, 6, Isaac carried the wood for the sacrifice. According to John 19, 17, Jesus carried the cross for his sacrifice. Genesis 22, 9, Isaac was bound and led to the altar. In Mark 15, Christ was bound. In Genesis 22, 2, Isaac is described as Abraham and Sarah's beloved and only son. Centuries later, God the Father, after Jesus is baptized, would say aloud, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Because of Abraham's obedience, the angel of the Lord promised in Genesis 22, 18, All the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. Because of Christ's obedience, Revelation 5.9 says, He, Jesus, purchased people for God by His blood from every tribe, every language, every people, and nation. Let me keep going. Both Isaac and Jesus were sons 
of promise. Both Isaac and Jesus were born to women who could not have conceived apart from a miracle. Both Isaac and Jesus willingly offered themselves. Both Isaac and Jesus asked questions in the midst of their sacrifice. Isaac was brought back from the dead figuratively. Jesus was brought back from the dead literally. But these stories diverge at a critical juncture. And please follow with me. Isaac's life was ultimately spared. But for Jesus, there was no ram caught in the thicket on that day. For Jesus, there was no substitute so that he could live because he was the substitute so that we could live. Don't miss that. God the Father went through what only Abraham had to go through in his heart. God literally sacrificed his son. So when God raised his hand at Calvary, there was no one who screamed out, Stop! Don't kill your son. There was no ram in the thicket on that day because Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So when Abraham lifted that knife, all of heaven must have marveled at how much a man could love God. Yet when Jesus hung on a cross, all of heaven was stunned by how much God could love man. Let me say it this way, to say it in a different way. In Genesis 22, we see what man will do for the love of God. But at the cross, we see what God does for the love of us. For us. And I want to land, I want to land today with this name again, Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. He provided for Abraham. He has provided for our greatest need, salvation. And he will provide for all of our lesser needs. Let me just remind you, if we can trust God with our greatest need, we can trust him with every other need in our lives. He can be trusted. He can be trusted. And let me end today with Romans 8, 32. We're going to put it on the screen one more time. I want you to see this. He, God, who did not spare his own son, Jesus, but gave him, Jesus, up for us all. How will he also, or not also, with him graciously give us, hear this, all things. He will give us all things. He has, he is, he will provide for his own. And please hear this this morning. Please hear this. If you don't have what you think you need right this moment, it's because you don't need it right this moment. For when you need it, you will have it. When you need it, you will have it. God will meet the needs of his own. He will supply for the needs of his children. It might not look the way we want it to look. It might not be at the time we want it to to come. But he will meet the needs of his own. In fact, here's the beautiful thing. God has staked his own reputation by that promise. God says, I will meet your need. Do we trust that? Do we believe that? Do we trust him as our provider? I'm going to go ahead and ask you to stand. And we're going to enter this time of invitation and consecration. We're going to ask the praise team to come forward. And here's the deal. Maybe you're here today and you have never allowed your greatest need to be met. And that greatest need is salvation through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for your sins. Call on the name of the Lord right now and be saved.
right now. Call in the name of the Lord. Turn from your sin. Turn from trusting yourself. Turn to Jesus. Trust him as Savior and Lord, and you will be saved. But also, maybe you're here today, and you are struggling with a need that looks so much greater than God's. And you don't know how it's going to be met. You don't know when it's going to be met. But the ask, ask today is to believe that God is still Jehovah Jireh. And he will provide. It's what he does. He will provide. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this moment, this holy moment, by which we have seen your holy word. Oh, God, we ask that you would, Lord, in this moment, Father, just Meet us in this place, God. Just We pray for any in this room or watching online that have never had their greatest need of salvation met. We pray that today would be a day of salvation. Today would be a day of salvation, Father. We also, Lord, pray for the needs of your children across this room. God, our needs are real. We don't want to act like, God, our needs aren't real. And we don't want to act like, God, our needs aren't huge. But Lord, what we want to do right now is we want to verbally confess and say, God, that you're greater than our needs. God, you're greater than our needs. And Lord, you're more than able to meet our every single need according to your riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Meet our needs, God, as we trust in you. Meet our needs as we empty our hands of all the things that we think we have to do or hold on to and help us to trust you more. Finish this time. Finish this time, oh God. In Jesus' name, amen.